Hello and welcome to Memento Mount today. The 19th and 20th century was an era of great discovery. During this time, much of the bases for different plant breeding systems were discovered or perfected into their modern forms. Within self-pollinating crops, the first known cultivars were specific lines derived from land races and open, open pollinated lines. These lines were mostly self-pollinating in nature, so when separated from the main land race, they would self-pollinate and stabilize into a separate genetic line. As time went on, these offshoots would become the basis for crossbreeding programs. Through this process, it was found that the first generation, or F1C, that was produced would not produce a great deal of variation, but the second generation, or F2 lines, as a consequence of meiosis, would produce a great deal of variation. Meiosis is a process would produce a great deal of variation. Meiosis is a process of the production of pollen and egg cells. The details of meiosis are beyond the scope of this video, but if you want me to make a video on the topic, please let me know. But to make a long story short, as a result of meiosis, the genes begin segregating across the generations. Because these species predominantly self-pollinate, the mixing between pollen and egg cells usually happens within the same plant, rather than between plants, with instances of cross-pollination being the exception, not the rule. Breeding systems were further developed to remove any of that latent possibility for cross-breeding. After 12 generations, giants formed through this process and became stabilized. These were then tested out for suitability in modern farming. And to this day, this remains the main methodology that is used to breed self-pollinating crops. This method of self-pollination was then carried over into the possibility of making inbred lines for naturally cross-breeding species, such as corn. These inbred lines were later crossbred together to create F1 hybrids. This could create uniformity, as well as restore the original vigor of the cross-pollinated plant. These are F1 hybrids. Problem with F1 hybrids is that they are all siblings. As a consequence, cross-breeding between these siblings would create inbreeding and cause intermixing to happen once more, removing both uniformity and vigor. As a consequence, a specific cultivar of an F1 hybrid can only be made using specific inbred lines, found only within the organizations that produce and maintain said lines. Effectively, an F1 hybrid is an inbuilt patent. In modern times, most cross-pollinating annual crops are of the F1 hybrid nature. During the exact same time, there is a general movement within perennial crops to different systems. During the era of the 19th and early 20th century, there is a move away from the various specialized apples and russety apples, such as the apples suited to different soils and different seasons, such as early apples, mid-season apples, and late apples, were gradually replaced with highly marketable red, yellow, and green apples, suited for the long-term storage systems that were, being, that were being developed during this time period, that were also generalistic to all soil types. A similar process happened in pears. Within cherries, there is a movement to self-pollinating cherries, with a very specific flavor profile. A similar process likewise happened in peaches. There have been other innovations during this time as well, such as Norman Borlaug incorporating a dwarf land race into common wheat cultivars to create dwarf wheat. These processes allowed for nitrogen to be applied in greater levels without the crop falling over. This played a major role in increasing yield within wheat. Likewise, within soybeans, the discovery of denatural soybeans allowed for the production of soybeans within Canada. 
in the northern part of the United States. Similarly, the creation of various synthetic fertilizers likewise play a major role in the shift in agriculture. A positive consequence of these innovations was a larger food surplus than there was before. This allowed for a first specialization within civilization, as fewer people were needed to farm. Food also became a lot less expensive, reducing hunger within these societies, within locations that have adopted these practices. However, there's also negative consequences as a result of these processes and methods. In this case, the major problem is genetic erosion. This happens through three processes, replacement, inbreeding, and the founder effect. In many cases, all these factors overlap. In terms of replacement, as new cultivars are made and adopted, the older, more genetically diverse populations are replaced by these new cultivars. This gradually reduces the genetic diversity of the crop species as a whole by the replacement or reduction in population of these ancient cultivars. As these ancient cultivars are the primary source of new genetic diversity in modern cultivars. An example of this would be in Turkey. Turkey is one of the main centers of origin for wheat. And it's estimated that the replacement of these ancient Turkish land races of wheat by new modern cultivars has caused a reduction in the total genetic diversity within Turkey, somewhere between 59% and 75.5%. This is a significant loss of possibilities for future genetic additions into any plant breeding system. The use of inbred lines likewise has caused a reduction in genetic diversity. When you inbreed, the amount of genetic lines within a population diminish. And with the advent of double haploid technology, this process can go faster. But this new technology comes with a cost. The number of genetic possibilities you can get per individual plant genotype you can get per individual plant genotype gets further reduced down to two genetic possibilities. This process creates inbred lines suited for making F1 hybrids rapidly, but also burns through the portion of the gene pool that seed companies have access to just as quickly. As a consequence, the Monsantos of the world continually acquire other material by acquiring other companies to obtain their genetic material or by obtaining genetic material from universities, all in the service of replacing their now rapidly becoming defunct genetics. As a consequence, these breeders are always on the treadmill of rapidly burning through their own gene pool and having to replace it with a new gene pool, which is just as rapidly burned through. The founder effect is a further element of this process. The founder effect is when a subset of a population gets split off from the main population, and that population becomes the foundation of the new population. Depending on the size of the foundation of the population, a lot more fixed traits will be appearing, as well as a lot more inbreeding. Within modern apples, the foundation of 73% of all modern apples comes from five cultivars. Jonathan, Golden Delicious, Red Delicious, Macintosh, and Cox Orange Pippin. This happened for a simple reason that there's very genetic lines within apples that meet the requirements for being a modern apple within a commercial facility, or as a cultivar for breeding new varieties. As a consequence, most of these cultivars have a far more limited gene pool. As a consequence, the problems found within these populations, whether or not it be disease or physiological dis, cannot be easily overcome. A similar process has happened in cherries, peaches, and pears. As mentioned before, these problems can overlap. Take for instance, the example of Dr. Willen. This is a story he shared with me during my time as an undergrad within university. During his work in making inbred lines of asparagus, lines of asparagus using the double haploid method, 
He went to various farms where open-pollinate heirloom cultivars with great levels of genetic diversity were being grown. Such cultivars include Viking. These various populations became the primary source of genetic material that Dr. Wollen worked with. In the end, he bred a very popular cultivar known as Millennium. Thanks to this cultivar's vigor, fusarium resistance, yield, and uniformity, this cultivar became very popular. Too popular. As a consequence, the Millennium cultivar became the predominant cultivar, and now farmers that grow Viking or any other heirloom asparagus variety rarity in Canada. As a consequence, the primary source of new genetic material has to come from what has already been collected within the inbred lines. The founder effect also interacts with inbreeding within the breeding programs within North America. The foundation stock for North American populations of cherry of cherry are five cultivars, Blackheart, Emperor Francis, Empress Eugene, and Napoleon. Cherries are naturally cross-pollinating species, but thanks to the mutated S4 gene found in Napoleon, all Napoleon cultivars can self-pollinate, and this trait can be passed on to its progeny. Example, as a consequence, many of the latest cultivars are derived from self-pollination events within the self-pollinating lines within these American breeding programs. Both of these aspects have caused a severe decline in the genetic diversity. This brings us back to Mexico. In the Mexico versus United States transgenic crop battle, I will have to take Mexico's side on this. Mexico is the main home of all the primary open pollinated varieties of corn, as well as all the land races. This is for a simple reason that Corn was born and bred and domesticated within this region. Within this region, by putting emphasis on the native cultivars and land races, Mexico is guaranteeing the security of these lines for future breeding efforts to further develop modern-day cultivars, and as such, guarantees the viability of these crops going forward into the future. Within the realms of the Western world, there are more limited options on what could be preserved. Canada in general has the lowest level of heirloom specialized nurseries that I can find. There are far more heritage nurseries specializing in heritage plants within the United States in comparison with Canada. Just going by heirloom apples and pears, there's only a small number within Canada, a larger number within the United States, with the greatest number being within the UK. Indeed, even with the quagmire of modern Western politics, the UK still holds a great traditional love of all fruit, and preserves most of its horticultural history and heritage within different nurseries, both private and public. A similar phenomenon is happening within the United States as well. To conclude, I can give you one piece of advice. Do everything you can to preserve what you have in terms of horticultural heirlooms, using whatever means you have. If you have the conditions to grow a heirloom, do so. If you know a seed bank, and you have the ability to donate to it, do so. If you have the option to buy from a farmer that sells heritage plants or heritage fruit, do so. The most we can do is hold on to the varieties of old as if they're the key to the future and the future of agriculture depends on it. Because they are, does. And that about covers everything. Thank you for watching. Thank you for watching this video. If you enjoyed this video, please like and subscribe. If you really enjoyed it and think you can donate, you can do so at Buy Me a Coffee, link in the description below. Thank you for watching.